Well, Cornerstone, it's great seeing you guys. Great being here. Um, and uh, I've got uh, my main man, Miles, my eight-year-old son, and I thought I would introduce him to you all. And uh, Miles is hanging out with me uh, this weekend. And uh, in fact, just the other day, a woman came up to me and said, your son is so cute. His mother must be gorgeous. That'll hit some of you at about 2 o'clock this afternoon. But uh, anyways, I just wanted to introduce you to my son, Miles. He brings such a sense of joy and pride to my life, and I just love him so much. All right? You can go sit with Grandma. Yeah. I won't make my mother-in-law stand, uh, but uh, outside of Jesus Christ, she has given me the greatest gift in, uh, in her daughter, and boy, she is fine, my wife. So thank you, Judy, for that. So anyways, you have your Bibles. Please meet me in Hebrews chapter 12. As you're turning there, uh, I bring you greetings from Memphis, Tennessee, where I pastor a church called Fellowship Memphis. Uh, We planted it some eight years ago. I'm oftentimes asked the question, Brian, of all the places in the world uh, to plant a church, why Memphis, Tennessee? Especially uh, given the fact that I'm I'm used to big cities, progressive cities like Philadelphia and Atlanta and Los Angeles. I've lived in all those places. Yes, I heard that lone uh, uh, amen. So, which by the way, feel free to, see, to say amen. I'm a black preacher. That makes me preach faster. Um, so um, not going to throw me off a bit. So say amen. Preach it, brother. Hallelujah. When you're ready for me to end, say bring it home and we'll call it a day. Okay. <laughs> Back to Memphis. So uh, we're often asked the question, why Memphis, Tennessee? And I think that's a great question, especially when you consider uh, that Memphis has all of these churches. The average city has one church per thousand people. Memphis has two. So why plant another church? We actually prayed, God, would you send us to the most racially divided, segregated city along African-American and white lines? We were real specific. And using the 2000 census and a lot of time on our knees, Memphis, Tennessee was the answer. Uh, We started with 26 people. I was the only piece of chocolate in the bunch. And uh, uh, people told us that we couldn't do it. After all, if you know anything about the city of Memphis, extremely um, comes from an extremely racist tradition. Uh, That's the city that, of course, killed Dr. King. Right in the middle of town is a park in honor to Nathan Bedford Forrest. Uh, That was the founder of the KKK. Around the corner from there is Confederate Park. I joke somewhat uh, jokingly that uh, the average Memphian doesn't uh, realize that they lost the war. Um, uh, Around the corner from that is uh, Auction Street where they used to auction the slaves. And so people said, Brian, nice idea. It's never been done before. It can't happen. And yet eight years later, we see right around 1,500 to 2,000 people were 65% white, 35% African-American, and God is doing some good things. So when you think of Memphis, just don't think of uh, Justin Timberlake or Barbecue or Elvis, which Elvis and I did breakfast the other day, told me to tell you hi. Uh, but uh, think of, think of all the, the work that, that God's doing there. And let me just say this one last thing, then we'll dive into the text, especially since they put a clock on a brother, which... A clock to a black preacher is like kryptonite, I tell you. But um, anyways, let me just say this one last thing. One of the things we're passionate about is we think every church should have what we call a minor league farm system. The church exists to raise people up, to train them, to equip them. And I I don't want to have to do a national search for any position. And one of the things that we're passionate about is we're passionate about planting gospel-centered, disciple-making, multi-ethnic churches. 
That's our passion. When we read Revelation 5, it says that when we get to heaven, there's going to be people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue. I mean, heaven's going to be phenomenal. Uh, there's, there's going to be a brother playing on the Hammond B3 organ, and there's going to be a big, you know, uh, mass choir led by a wonderful Presbyterian, and then there'll be Brian, a white boy in flip-flops, and it'll just great, <laughs> just great stuff happening in heaven. Well, Jesus taught us, when he taught us to pray, he says, we're to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, Jesus was saying, Brian translation, that heaven ain't going to be like Vegas, that what happens in heaven shouldn't just stay in heaven. That it should be mimicked here on earth. And that if heaven is multi-ethnic, I don't want to have to wait till I die to experience that. I want a taste of that now. So one of the things that we do is we're planting multi-ethnic churches. We're going to plant Albert Tate, uh, which I hear he's come here to preach. Um, we're planting him. He's going to do a multi-ethnic church. We're planting another multi-ethnic church in Jackson, uh, Mississippi. One of the things that we do is we take young uh, men, many of them are African-American, and we send them to seminary. We pay for 100% of their seminary. Many of these men, we then, at the end of those three years, launch them out to plant churches, or we'll give them a job, or we'll launch them into the black church and help to make an extreme makeover there. reason why we specifically profile young black men because a lot of these young black men have a passion and a calling for ministry, but cannot afford to go to solid Bible teaching seminaries. And so we help to pay for 100% of it. Now, one of the ways in which you can help us, we brought a, a CD from our ministry called The Big Ten. Uh, our church a couple years ago logged on and said, if we could hear Pastor Brian teach on one thing, here's what we'd want him to teach on. And we took the top 10 most requested, and they're easy ones, like predestination. Uh, 1,500 debate, we solved that one in 45 minutes, okay? Uh, homosexuality, how would Jesus have us to respond to those in the homosexual community? Uh, politics, would Jesus be Democrat or Republican? Real easy stuff here, okay? Um, and so we've got 10 messages, and I want you to know that a portion of your proceeds, 10 messages for 10 bucks on one CD, portion of your proceeds will go to help send guys like Chris Davis. Chris Davis, uh, his father had been locked up since he's two years old, grew up in the ghettos of St. Louis. His mother has the equivalent of an eighth grade high school education. Chris Davis came in my office about a year ago, tears streaming down his face, said, thank you, Pastor Brian. I'm graduating with a master's of divinity. Neither of my folks made it out of high school. And now he's planning a church. Now he's planning a church in downtown Memphis. Uh, they just started. They've got 100 people there. Uh, they're multi-ethnic already. So would you help us send the Chris Davises of the world to seminary? Okay, in our last 28 minutes and one second left to go, let's get to it. Hebrews chapter 12, pick me up at verse 1. I want to just really camp out on three verses here. As we, as we know, we don't know exactly who wrote uh, the book of Hebrews, uh, and yet the writer says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, verse 2, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Would you pray with me? 
Lord, love these people. Coming to Arizona is like coming home. My wife is from here. A lot of wonderful memories here, Lord God. And just thank you for the work that is happening in this segment of your vineyard. Thank you for Pastor Lynn. Thank you for the pastoral team here, Lord God. We pray a special blessing on them. Thank you especially for the men of Cornerstone, many of whom I've met at Man Camp. And I pray that they can make it, Lord God, to Man Camp 2012, Lord God, as I'll be back there and just love what's happening, Father God. Lord God, would you tabernacle among us? Would you stand in my body, think with my mind, speak with my tongue, those things you would have us know, say, and do. Encourage us, inspire us, challenge us, but ultimately change us more like you. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. On November 25th, 1980, Sugar Ray Leonard stepped into the ring against his old nemesis, Roberto Duran. This is the second time they fought in the span of five months. Previously, in their first encounter, five months before, uh, there was a bit of psychological warfare, mainly on the part of Roberto Duran towards Sugar Ray Leonard. He said some awful things about Sugar Ray Leonard and his family even. And when Leonard stepped into the ring that first uh, fight five months previous, you could tell that he was really upset. You see, you need to understand Sugar Ray Leonard's style of, of fighting was he was quick, fleet of foot, would, would love to stick and move, and he wasn't one to go toe for toe, but he was so agitated with Roberto Duran, this first fight, that he decided to depart from his game plan, his strength, and to step into the ring and exchange blows with a man whose nickname was Fists of Stone. Well, to the shock of the world, all did not go well for Sugar Ray Leonard, and he ended up losing that first fight. Now, five months later, they're back in the ring again, and when the opening bell sounds, you know that Sugar Ray Leonard uh, decided to go back to the way that he was. For eight rounds, he stuck and moved, and he danced like a butterfly and stung like a bee. Rumble, young man rumbles, what they said about Ali. And that was true for those eight rounds with Sugar Ray Leonard. For eight rounds, he danced. For eight rounds, he humiliated him. In fact, one time, Sugar Ray wound up with his right as if he was going to hit him with his right hand, only at the last second to backhand him across the face with his left hand. It was eight, mountain, eight rounds of pure humiliation. And then finally, with 16 seconds left to go in the eighth round, we boxing fans know what happened. Roberto Duran does the unthinkable. With 16 seconds left to go in the eighth round, Roberto Duran turns around, looks at the referee, and says these words, no mas. No mas. No more, no more. I'm finished. I quit. After the fight in the, in the post-fight press conference, they, they asked Sugar Ray what he thought about this shocking quittle by Roberto Duran. And Sugar Ray Leonard said these words, to make a man quit, to make a Roberto Duran quit, was better than knocking him out. No mas, no mas, I quit. If you're new to Cornerstone, for the last several weeks or so, we've been hanging out in the book of Hebrews. I'm saying that as an expert. This is my first Sunday here, but just go with it, okay? 
And one of the things that you should glean as we profile the people who the writer writes his letter to is, is there are people who have gone through some extremely difficult times. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 10, the writer gives us a glimpse of it when he says that, that these people, many of whom have had their property confiscated, others of them have been beaten to within an inch of their life, and still others had been thrown into jail. In fact, reverberating from their lips is really the same sentiment that Roberto Duran had on that night when Leonard embarrassed him. You can almost hear these newfound Jewish Christians saying, no mas, no mas, done, I quit. It's interesting because, just go with me here, here you have newfound Christians. They're Jewish in their ethnicity and orientation, but they're newfound Christians. And some of them have got to be thinking this. Some of them are doing the math saying, you know what? Before I got saved, I didn't have half the problems I've got now. Before I got saved, man, when I was just hanging out at the local pub with my friends, I didn't have my property taken from me. I didn't go through all that I'm going through now. But since following Jesus Christ, my life on many levels has gotten worse, not better. No mas. No mas. This Jesus thing isn't what I thought it would be ever been there? Oh, some of us way too spiritual to admit that. Ever been there? Someone's here today and you're, you're doing the math and you're going, prior to Christ, I didn't get the pink slip. Prior to Christ, I didn't get the foreclosure. Prior to Christ, I didn't deal with the short sale. Prior to Christ, my husband didn't walk out on me. Prior to Christ, my kids didn't go wayward. Prior to Christ, my car wasn't broken into. Prior to Christ, I didn't have the health crisis. Prior to Christ, I didn't have the lump on my breast. Prior to Christ, I didn't have any of this. Yet life for some of us, we're going to be really honest, is a pressure cooker. And some of us are sitting here right now, and in our souls, if we're going to take off our church mask, there's just this thing in us that is saying, no mas. I'm there with you. I'm there with you. Um, I know pastors aren't supposed to be vulnerable, but let me be vulnerable with you. Last 18 months in my life, pure hell. It began February 4th, 2010, when a major scandal broke out in my church. This guy did a horrific thing in our church, cost us about $100,000 in legal fees and other fees to clean it up. It's a wonder we didn't get sued by anybody. Oh, little footnote, the guy who did that is a family member of mine. Right after that, one of my sons has to have emergency surgery. Right after that, an elder goes left on me. Right after that, my wife and I are sitting in bed, and she's saying, Brian, I don't want to worry you about this, but I've been feeling my neck, and there's some lumps in my neck. And so that begins a, a major battery of tests, and I just love the health profession. I mean, they do stuff real quick, don't they? 
Go in for tests, wait on results. Results inconclusive, more tests, more tests, more tests. Right after that, kids, one of my kids' teacher calls home and says, you know what, your kid's really not doing well in school. We may need to hold him back. Right after that, another one of my son's white blood cell counts goes through the roof. Average white blood cell ranges between 5 and 15. His is up to 53,000. We're sitting in St. Jude's next to kids with bald heads and masks on their face. And I'm going, no mas, I can't take anything else. I'm racking my brain. What did I do wrong? Now, surely something has got to be happening. I did something wrong, I know, to be awarded the 2010 Job Award. <laughs> Ever been there? James says, count it all joy, not if you encounter various trials, but when. And I don't know about you, but when problems come to my house in Collierville, Tennessee, they never come by themselves. They bring their aunties and uncles, and they just have a nice little family reunion right there on my front door steps. No moss. No moss. I, I, I love the Bible. It's, it deals with real people, real problems. Can I just stop right here and say this? When you signed up to follow Jesus, it didn't mean that all of a sudden he puts you in an incubator and there's no problems that come your way. In fact, if you read the fine print, when you signed up to follow Jesus at the same time, you signed up to experience a layer of headaches and problems that the world will not experience. They're called persecution. I love it. I love the way Jesus gave altar calls. You really want to follow me? You really want to follow me? If anyone wishes to come out, let him take up his cross, deny himself daily, follow me. Uh, the altar's open, choir's going to sing just as I am. Who's signing up? Jesus does not promise you your best life now. In this life, all of us will have problems. And that's why when we get to the book of Hebrews over and over and over again, there's this little word that keeps popping up. One translation, it's the word endura. Another translation, it's the word persevere. It's almost as if the writer of Hebrews is, is like, a, it's like a dear old grandfather who's putting his arm around these wearied, newfound Christians who are saying, no mas, I can't take it anymore. All the headaches, all the problems, endure, persevere, hang in there, you can make it. Don't quit. Chapter 11, you walk through it. He says with his arms around him, you think you're the only one with a problem? Look, look over there. There's, there's Abraham. Him and Sarai dealt with infertility for decades. Look what God did in their life. Over there, there's, there's Moses. He dealt with low self-esteem, thought he wasn't much of a speaker, and, and he looked over the rearview mirror of his life and thought he had peaked too soon when he was in Egypt, and now he's tending sheep in and, and the backside of a mountain in Midian. And, and look over there, there's Joseph betrayed by his brothers, and over there, there's David. Look to them. You're not the only one going through things. And yet all these people believed God and God showed up. And then he ends 
Hebrews 11 in a very, very different way. Will you look at Hebrews 11, verse 36? He said, others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves. And all these, please underline verse 39. I, this just needs to be somebody's bumper sticker. All these, though commended through their faith, didn't receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. It's interesting. He says, first half of Hebrews 11, there's Abraham, there's Moses, there's Isaac. These people went through some things. They prayed about it. God showed up and came through, but he doesn't stop there. The end of Hebrews 11, he says, you know what? But there are some people who prayed and God didn't answer their prayer in their lifetime. He didn't. John the Baptist, I love this one. Matthew 11, Jesus' cousin John the Baptist is sitting in jail because he spoke out against Herod and his illicit relationship with this one woman. And here he is sitting in jail and, and John the Baptist is staring death in his eyes and he sends his disciples to go see Jesus. And, and, and they go to Jesus and they've got instructions from John in which to ask Jesus, are you the one? Now here's a translation. Read the white spaces of your Bible. Here's a translation. John is saying, are you the one? Translation, if you're the one, get me out of here. I love it. Jesus then quotes from Isaiah 61.1. This is masterful. He quotes from Isaiah 61.1, which talks about uh, him, him, um, him binding up the brokenhearted and dealing with the poor. But he leaves out the part that says, and sets the captives free. It's an encoded message. When he leaves that out, it's as if he's saying, yes, I'm the one, John, but you ain't getting out of this one. I love it. In my mind's eye, it's almost as if John's disciples come back, they quote to him what Jesus said from Isaiah 61.1, leave out the part about setting the captives free, and I just imagine John saying, did he say something else? I love it. Matthew 11, Jesus saying, John, yes, I am the one. Yes, I am the Messiah. And no, your circumstances are not going to change. I'm Jesus even when your head gets put on a platter. God had to deal with me on that, sitting in St. Jude's. I'm Jesus, even if the test results come back horrible. The authenticity of my Messiahship is not predicated on the results of a mammogram. Now we come to chapter 12. The writer encouraging, don't quit, don't give up. Yeah, I know, I see the pink slip. Yeah, I know you went through the short sale. Yeah, I know you've got your home foreclosed on. Yeah, I know all about that stuff. Look, Abraham, look, Isaac, look, John the Baptist. Now it's your turn. Hebrews 12, look at verse 1. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, we've looked at them, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Here it is. And let us underline this word, run 
with endurance. I wish I had time to really unpack this. The, uh, the, the, the New Testament written in a language called Greek, sitting up under Pastor Lynn, you know that, world-class teacher. Greek word for run, treko. This word run, same word that's used in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 that says this. Paul writes, and do you not know that everyone who runs in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. The Greek word for run, hear it now, does not just speak of the physical repetitious movement of one's feet. It speaks more to the essence to the heart of the runner. For this word run literally means to give it your all. It is the idea of a sense of passion. Watch this now in its theological context. The writer of Hebrews says, I don't just need you to hang in there. I'm not just asking you to not quit. I need you to run. Have a sense of passion. Get after it. You're not running after a new car. You're not running after a spouse. You're running after a man who gave up his only life for you. Have some passion. Uh, um, I, 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 I love the Rocky movies up until Rocky V. Rocky five and six, little far-fetched. But Rocky's one through four, great. And Rocky two, love Rocky two. What, here's what's happening. Rocky two and first Rocky, this, this bum uh, from, from Philadelphia, the Italian stallion, does the unthinkable, uh, unthinkable. Rocky one, he takes Apollo Creed all the way to the limits, and man, it ends up in a tie. Rocky two, man, he's got all these endorsements. The world is at his feet. It's great. It's wonderful. And then all of a sudden, life happens. His wife gets pregnant. She goes through a hard labor. She falls falls into a coma. And at the same time, he's supposed to be training for a second fight against Apollo Creed, but he's going through the motions and Mick is getting upset and what are you doing and all this stuff that's happening. And then all of a sudden, man, she beats the odds. She comes out of a coma. They're there in the waiting room and, and, and she's alive now. And she's talking to him and, and she said, Rocky, how's it going? He says, it's going okay. And she says, look, there's one thing I want you to do. And he bends in, leans in closer. And she, he says, what do you want me to do, sweetheart? And she says, when? When and you hear the music, dum dum dun dum dun dum dun dum, goosebumps on your arms, and Mickey saying, "Let's do it!" And man, it's crazy. And now he's training with a sense of passion. Do you have a passion for Jesus? Is Jesus for you, and I have to, or and I get to? My, my oldest boy, Quentin, 10 years old, when, when, our, when our sons turn 10, we declare manhood training officially starts. Especially if you can see over the lawnmower uh, handles. <laughs> get your butts off the sofa and get out there. I mean, we lay it out. You know, I just, my worst nightmare is to have a 25-year-old son sitting on my sofa wearing Star Wars jammies, playing video games all day, and pontificating on the problems of the, death, on the debt ceiling. I just, nah, you ain't got a job, brother. You can't talk about the debt ceiling, all right? So, so we start manhood training. Because here's what I understand. As an American Christian, if I do nothing, the default is I will unleash from my house a narcissistic child who thinks life is all about them. And so we just got back from, on Friday. I took him down on his first missions trip, first time out of the country. We went, we went to Honduras. One of the things that we saw in Honduras, I think every believer needs to go to Honduras. And you need to see this. I've never seen anything like it in the world. And I've been all over the world. We go to this place called The Dump. It is this huge garbage dump where thousands of children 
thousands of Hondurans live, and at most they'll make $2 a day. We get there, and as we're ascending the hill, the stench is nauseating. We see hundreds of vultures, if not thousands, circling the air. We get out of the van. My son puts his DS to the side, gets out of the van. We then stand on top of a pickup truck, and for the next however long, we're standing and we're serving people meals. My son is weeping. I am weeping. We get back in the car. Silence. My son then, later on that evening, 10-year-old kid, this is the most meaningful thing I've ever experienced as a parent. My 10-year-old kid writes me a note saying, Dad, thank you for showing me that life is not about video games and possessions. I used to want to be a basketball player, but now I want to be a missionary. And I get it. Now, don't clap, because next week he, he may go back to be, wanting to be LeBron James, but it's great this week. But to see a 10-year-old with a sense of passion, to see a 10-year-old get it, life isn't about iPads and, and, and DSs and even Christian camps. Life is about Jesus giving your life away. Run it with a sense of passion. Is that you? Is that you? Do your kids see a passion for Jesus? Writer of Hebrews says, hang in there. I, I know it's tough. I see no moss on your lips. But don't just hang in there. Run. Run. He then goes on to say, will you look at the text with me? Verse 1, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. Let me just say this real fast, and I hate that this is the most important thing I want to say to you, but I can't really unpack it. Uh, next service, I'll unpack it because there's not a service immediately after that, and I can talk as long as I want. So here's the deal. He says, listen, you need to do some things. You have a duty. Lay aside the sin. Lay aside the weight. Duty. But hear it. The emphasis in the text is not on duty, but the emphasis in the text is on running after Jesus. I want you to get that. The emphasis in the text is not on what I have to do. The emphasis is on the, in the text is on desire. Man, I kill my church on this all the time. Memphis, Tennessee, buckle of the Bible Belt. Everybody in Memphis says they're Christians. Man, they, they have their quiet times. They read, they pray. Right next to the little Bethmore bobblehead dolls. It's wonderful. It's rich. And it's great. But here's what I'm seeing about Memphis, Tennessee. Everyone says they're a Christian. They go to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. It's wonderful. They got their own little Christian athletic leagues. But Memphis, still racist town, worst education school system in the whole state, all this stuff, worst crime in the whole state. And you're going, for all these religious people, there's still all this racism, all this crime, all this poverty. And what Memphis, Tennessee shows us is religion cannot change a culture. No amount of quiet times changes a culture. It's like watching the Arizona Cardinals. Just imagine going to a football game and all they do is huddle. <laughs> Duty is not enough. It's got to flow out of desire. 
You know, when I first saw Corey, again, thank you, Judy. When I, when I first saw Corey, when I, when I first saw my wife, fine. I'd never seen anything like that before. I was sitting in church. Girlfriend messed my worship up. <laughs> now, you shouldn't say that, Brian. You know, you shouldn't go to church to meet people. Would you rather I go to the club? So here's the deal. I see her. Fall in love with her. But the problem is, I'm Poe. Not poor. I can't afford the other O and the R. I'm Poe. Okay? Remember being in love? Some of us need to think real hard now. Remember the cheesy stuff we used to do? Corey and I, this is in a pre-MP3 world, we had this Jodeci CD. And we'd be on the phone at 11 o'clock at night. I know some of you, Jodeci, what's that? It's, it's not even... So we have this Jodeci CD, 11 o'clock at night, she's in her house in Hollywood, I'm in my house in Pasadena, we put the CD in at the same time, go to the same track number, and at the same time we press play. <laughs> don't, don't look at me like the only person who did something like that, okay? <laughs> See, he, here's the point. In those days, you didn't have to beg me to show up with the flowers, or to ask her out, or to spend time with her, or to take her, why? Because I had desire. And duty flowed out of it. That's what Jesus wants. Jesus said to the church at Ephesus, I got this against you. It ain't that you ain't doing this stuff. Yeah, you're you're, you're, you're defending the doctrine and your programs are wonderful and you're coming to church. I have a problem with you. You've left your first love. At some point, desire got sacrificed for duty. Do you desire him? Ooh, two minutes. Let's, let's hustle. Run with passion. Last thing. He's begging us to run with efficiency. Now, here's what he says. Lay aside. He says, lay aside every weight. Um, our text originally written in Greek. The Greek word for lay aside, it was the same word used of what the Greek runners would do when they would, before the contest, would strip down naked, or naked as they say in Memphis. They would strip down naked, and they, would, they didn't want anything to hinder them from running so fast. Says, lay it aside. What are we supposed to lay aside? Sin. Of course, that's a no-brainer. Hebrews 12, 14 says, strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We get that. We understand that all of us have sin issues in our life. We've got to address them. We've, we've got to come to the Spirit of God and say, God, just change it about my life. It's a means of grace. God, would you do that? But he doesn't just say lay aside the sin. Watch this now. He says lay aside the weight. What is the weight? Weight is anything that slows you down. Hear it now. The reason why he classifies it as different from sin is because what slows one person down may not slow another person down. Let me help you with this. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says it this way. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are permissible. In other words, there are some things that Brian Loritz can't do that you can do. And here's the deal. Christians are real good about thinking through sin. We're not good at thinking about weight. Weight is anything that someone else may be allowed to do, but you can't do because it slows you down. Maybe for some of us, it's secular music. Maybe for some of us, that's what it is. And some of other people, man, they can listen to it and still run hard after Jesus. But me, I can't. It's a weight in my life. Others of us, maybe it's a certain kind of a car. There is no verse that says, thou shalt not drive a Mercedes or BMW. But for you, you can't do that. Why? Because it's a weight. It will slow you down. What are the weights in your life? 
They're not issues of right or wrong universally, but they are issues of right or wrong for you. And you've just experienced by way of life, I can't do that. You can do it. I can't because it slows me down. Christians are great about thinking about sin. We're not good about thinking about weights. What are your weights? Some years ago, I was, um, I was traveling. I was at the airport. If you know anything in recent years with the economic pressures of our country, the airline industry has felt the squeeze. And so uh, what they've done is they've uh, unleashed uh, some new regulations about travel, and especially, especially about weight requirements. Uh, you can't get by with traveling with as much 